Hello everyone and welcome back. It's stream time, you runk puffians. Now, you know what? The situation's kind of fluid, so maybe I will anyway. Maybe we'll find out. I do in fact have to take a phone call in the middle of this stream anyway. <laughs> Gem says, your theory is that I'm actually ordering sushi. I see. <laughs> I finished with the script, which was a bear. Oh, it was a grizzly bear on my back for like a month. I, I wrote the entire script and I have finished with the recording process. Now I just need to do a little bit of editing. It's all cut down into the uh, into the rough cut. I just need to do a polish pass on it. It is a new podcast called Shelf Confidence. I'm going to blame that name on Van Saves Lives over in the Discord. I'm starting with sort of an introductory one and then we're going to move on. My next one is going to be on my, my Lord of the Rings paperback bound edition and how it has traveled with me through the many, many years since I originally got it. That's going to be the next episode. This first episode is on Ike's Egg. Now, this is something that is going to be released to patrons first, all right? So um, if you would like to jump in immediately, you can head over to Patreon and find out more about that. And if you're wondering when such a thing as this will be released, if you're wondering when other things, like all of the cuts of side karaoke, if you're wondering about all of the behind the scenes things that I'm working on, when is all of this going to be released widely to the public? Well, the answer is book fair. This is going to be at the end of September this year, I'm going to be doing this once, maybe twice a year. End of September, that very final week of September, that is going to be book fair. Book fair isn't just books, it is going to be a big week of me streaming a lot. I've taken it entirely off of work, I'm going to be streaming every single day, very likely multiple streams every day, unless we have just like one super long block. I am going to be, do we're going to be doing a group read through, we're going to be doing, I probably want to do a crafting stream in there. Games, uh, I know Jackbox was on the list, if y'all want to know more about that, of course if you're watching this on YouTube or later on, you can find these links um, all inside the link tree, etc. Uh, Memnite says, nice little week-long RPG campaign. Probably not a week-long one, but I am absolutely down for a one-shot. I would love to do a one-shot, a nice, a nice, fun RPG session in there. I think that would be fantastic. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So, once again, final week of September, that is Book Fair, and if you want to learn more, head over to that channel of the same name in Discord. Rose says, my LOTR and Silmarillion went to Thailand with me. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I like to uh, journal a little bit on the blank pages inside the front covers of my books. Um, just a little bit. Just sort of a, a little letter to myself about what was going on at the time. And I had to retroactively do this one because this, I mean, this book is probably one of the oldest possessions of mine. It's probably one of the things that I've had the longest. Uh, Hogwarts Hippie says, I love that, Sam. I love writing little notes in my favorite books. It has been good because, as I've mentioned so many times before, this is... A form of art and we come to art from where we are and so I like a note about where I was coming from at the time of reading this book what phase of life I'm in here's where my emotions are at as I'm coming into this this story and so that I can look back on that and when I think about here's what here's the impact Neuromancer had on me I can also look at when it had that impact and perhaps why. Of course, you can, you know, add little notes in there or what have you. Because I'm sure, you know, once these eventually go to goodwill, uh, I'm sure somebody's going to have kind of an odd day reading a strange little letter to oneself from a couple of initials they don't recognize. We'll see. So, y'all, speaking of books, 
What a what a weak segue. <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of books. Hey, you ever think about books and how, you know, so we stream about the books and I got them on my shelf and we talk about them and then I would go ahead and read them on the stream, don't we? Well, here's the thing. We've got books to read today. I think it's time, don't you? Let's talk review. So, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I almost said the lightning thief, but no, it's not. It is the Sea of Monsters. It is the, the Sushi Sea of Monsters. Um, last week, we read, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. We read chapter seven, I accept gifts from a stranger, and chapter eight, we board the Princess Andromeda. This is the, this is the transition, right? We've gone from kind of our opening action, that quiet period before the action picks up, before there's a quest to go on. We've had that, right? Chapters one through six. Percy is back at camp. He's been having some dreams about Grover. Now it's time to finally go and ask Tantalus, the new camp director. Can we go on his quest? Tantalus, you might have to go on his quest. Tantalus says no. The champion will be chosen from the the mighty of the. It's going to be Clarice. Tantalus chooses Clarice, and even though this is Percy's best friend, even though. Uh, Percy is the one having the dreams. Tantalus chooses Clarice, and that is who is going to be going to rescue Grover, to go discover the possibility that the Golden Fleece is actually there, this thing that could well save the camp and save Talia's tree at the same time. Or I should, I should say, save Talia's tree and save the camp by that same virtue. Let's see. Um, we discuss a little bit more the Sea of Monsters itself. Now, the Sea of Monsters, like so much of Greek myth, it's a thing that moves around. Much like Mount Olympus is now way up above the Empire State Building, so too the Sea of Monsters has moved. It used to be in the Mediterranean. Now it is in the Atlantic Ocean. Specifically, a place that has its own name, according to mortals, the Bermuda Triangle. This matches up with the coordinates that the Grey Sisters gave to Percy back when he didn't know what they meant. They are indeed coordinates of a spot inside the Bermuda Triangle, the Sea of Monsters. Now, this is really bad news, obviously. And as Percy is not chosen to go with, he is kind of brooding on all of this. And he meets someone out on the beach. Turns out this someone is none other than the god Hermes, who, if you will all remember, is the father of Luke. Luke's father is Hermes, um, and it seems like Hermes, without saying so explicitly, Hermes has some desire that Percy might save Luke, or at the very least might save more than just Grover. He gives Percy some gifts. And for those of you on the Discord, you can't see me right now, but I'm pulling my glasses way down my nose and spiking the camera. So we've seen how gifts work out, haven't we? You punks! Gifts from gods have not treated Percy particularly well. We shall see how he fares here. He receives two gifts. The first one, I don't remember. Now I do. Here we go. <laughs> um, it is a thermos containing the four winds. And the second is a pack of, like, vitamins, it seems like. Little vitamin gummies. Odd stuff. Um, but... He's not supposed to take the gummies until he's in time of dire need, and with these four winds, hey man, just be careful, because uh, this thing kicks. It's got to kick like a mule. 
It's like it's got a kick like one of my favorite descriptions of a kick from Breaking Bad that I cannot share on this particular stream. We got these two gifts, and Hermes gives one final gift after a fashion. It is the gift of implied approval. He says that basically, you know, most people aren't remembered for following the rules. Seems like when heroes do things, often they sort of ask forgiveness later rather than permission now. Percy interprets this as Hermes saying, you know what, break the rules. I know what Tantalus said, just go on the quest anyway. Here's your bags, boom, and indeed, Hermes has packed three bags because up from the beach come Annabeth and Tyson. They board a couple of, uh, after Hermes disappears, they board a couple of hippocampi. These are seahorses, essentially, but horses of the sea. Um, and they head out to this cruise ship, the Andromeda, the Princess Andromeda. It's an odd little sight here, um, especially as they board and realize that there is no one here. It is almost deathly quiet. Not really. There's almost no one here. As they proceed silently, as they stealth their way through the various halls here, please ignore my sound paneling, um, they they see a few creatures, and ultimately, they see the thing that is going to keep them on this ship instead of deciding to just jump overboard right now. It's a ship taken over by monsters. What could possibly cause them to stay? It's Luke. Luke is here. Luke is saying something about them taking the bait and they decide okay we have to get to the bottom of this we have to we can't leave until we do and that's where we are left now i hope you will all enjoy this chapter um it is going to be let's see this first one is this first one's a little shorter and then the next one's a little longer so be ye forewarned uh, as i mentioned slightly 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 shorter on the read today that's all right you know, it's uh, it's got to fit in. You know what I mean? It's got to fit into the schedule. So that's what we're doing. Y'all, thank you very, very much for being here. Let's get into our reading. As usual, if you would like to find out more about Sidecar Stories, you can head to the link down in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Yeah, Memnite, I found this image. Um, this is a real this is a real ship, and I am just shocked to have found it, right? it is It is so perfect. Chapter 9. I have the worst family reunion ever. Annabeth volunteered to go alone since she had the cap of invisibility, but I convinced her it was too dangerous. Either we all went together, or nobody went. Nobody, Tyson voted. Mm, please. But in the end, he came along, nervously chewing his huge fingernails. We stopped at our cabin long enough to gather our stuff. We figured whatever happened, we would not be staying another night aboard the zombie cruise ship, even if they did have multi-million dollar bingo. I made sure Riptide was in my pocket and the vitamins and thermos from Hermes were at the top of my bag. I didn't want Tyson to carry everything, but he insisted. And Annabeth told me not to worry about it. Tyson could carry three full duffel bags over his shoulder as easily as I could carry a backpack. We sneaked through the corridors, following the ship's you-are-here signs toward the Admiralty Suite, Annabeth scouting ahead, invisibly. 
We hid whenever someone passed by, but most of the people we saw were just glassy-eyed zombie passengers. As we came up the stairs to deck 13, where the Admiralty suite was supposed to be, Annabeth hissed, Hide! and shoved us into a supply closet. I heard a couple of guys coming down the hall. You see that Ethiopian dracon in the cargo hold? One of them said. The other laughed. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome! Annabeth was still invisible, but she squeezed my arm hard. Got a feeling I should know that second guy's voice. I hear they got two more coming, the familiar voice said. They keep arriving at this rate. Oh, man, no contest. The voices faded down the corridor. That was Chris Rodriguez. Annabeth took off her cap and turned visible. You remember, from cabin 11. I sort of recalled Chris from the summer before. He was one of those undetermined campers who got stuck in the Hermes cabin because his Olympian dad or mom never claimed him. Now that I thought about it, I realized I hadn't seen Chris at camp this summer. What's another half-blood doing here? Annabeth shook her head, clearly troubled. We kept going down the corridor. I didn't need maps anymore to know I was getting close to Luke. I sensed something cold and unpleasant. The presence of evil. Percy? Annabeth stopped suddenly. Look. She stood in front of a glass wall looking down into the multi-story canyon that ran through the middle of the ship. At the bottom was the promenade, a mall full of shops, but that's not what caught Annabeth's attention. A group of monsters had assembled in front of the candy store, a dozen Lestragonian giants like the ones that had attacked me with dodgeballs, two hellhounds, and a few even stranger creatures, humanoid females with twin serpent tails instead of legs. Scythian Dracana, Annabeth whispered. Dragon women? The monsters made a semicircle around a young guy in Greek armor who was hacking on a straw dummy. A lump formed in my throat when I realized the dummy was wearing an orange Camp Half-Blood t-shirt. As we watched, the guy in armor stabbed the dummy through its belly and ripped upward. Straw flew everywhere. The monsters cheered and howled. Annabeth stepped away from the window. Her face was ashen. Come on, I told her, trying to sound braver than I felt. The sooner we find Luke, the better. At the end of the hallway were double oak doors that looked like they must lead somewhere important. When we were thirty feet away, Tyson stopped. Mm. Voices. Inside. You can hear that far? I asked. Tyson closed his eyes like he was concentrating hard. Then his voice changed, becoming a husky approximation of Luke's. The prophecy ourselves. The fools won't know which way to turn. Before I could react, Tyson's voice changed again, becoming deeper and gruffer like the other guy we'd heard talking to Luke outside the cafeteria. Do you really think the old horseman is gone for good? Tyson laughed Luke's laugh. <laughs> they can't trust him, not with the skeletons in his closet. 
The poisoning of the tree was the final straw. Annabeth shivered. Stop that, Tyson. How do you do that? It's creepy. Tyson opened his eyes and looked puzzled. Hmm, just listening. Okay, keep going, I said. What else are they saying? Tyson closed his eyes again. He hissed in the gruff man's voice. Quiet. Then Luke's voice whispering. Are you sure? Yes. Tyson said in the gruff voice, right outside. Too late, I realized what was happening. I just had time to say, Run! When the doors of the stateroom burst open and there was Luke, flanked by two hairy giants armed with javelins, their bronze tips aimed right at our chests. Well, said Luke with a crooked smile, if it is my two favorite cousins, you come right in. The stateroom was beautiful, and it was horrible. The beautiful part? Huge windows curved along the back wall, looking out over the stern of the ship. Green sea and sky stretched all the way to the horizon. A Persian rug covered the floor. Two plush sofas occupied the middle of the room, with a canopied bed in one corner and a mahogany dining table in the other. The table was loaded with food, pizza boxes, bottles of soda, and a stack of roast beef sandwiches on a silver platter. The horrible part? On a velvet dais at the back of the room lay a ten-foot-long golden casket, a sarcophagus engraved with ancient Greek scenes of cities in flames and heroes dying grisly deaths. Despite the sunlight filtering through the windows, the casket made the whole room feel cold. "'Well,' Luke said, spreading his arms proudly. "'A little nicer than cabin eleven, huh?' He had changed since last summer. Instead of Bermuda shorts and a T-shirt, he wore a button-down shirt, khaki pants, and leather loafers. His sandy hair, which used to be so unruly, was now clipped short. He looked like an evil male model, showing off what the fashionable college-age villain was wearing to Harvard this year. He still had a scar under his eye. Got all this beeping in the background, are you kidding me? You can't hear it because I'm holding down my mute button. There we go. He still had the scar under his eye. A jagged white line from his battle with a dragon. And propped against the sofa was his magical sword, Backbiter, glinting strangely with its half-steel, half-celestial bronze blade that could kill both mortals and monsters. Sit, he told us. He waved his hand and three dining chairs scooted themselves into the center of the room. None of us sat. Luke's large friends were still pointing their javelins at us. They looked like twins, but they weren't human. They stood about eight feet tall, for one thing, and only wore blue jeans, probably because their enormous chests were already shag-carpeted with thick brown fur. They had claws for fingernails, feet like paws. Their noses were snout-like, and their teeth were all pointed canines. 
Oh, yep. Okay, where are my manners at, huh? Luke said smoothly. These are my assistants, Agrius and Aureus. Perhaps you've heard of them. I said nothing. Despite the javelins pointed at me, it wasn't the bear twins who scared me. I'd imagined meeting Luke again and again, many times since he'd tried to kill me last summer. I pictured myself boldly standing up to him, challenging him to a duel. But now that we were standing face to face, I could barely stop my hands from shaking. You don't know Agrius and Aureus's story? Luke asked. Their mother... Well, it's sad, really. Aphrodite ordered the young woman to fall in love. She refused and ran to Artemis for help. Artemis let her become one of her maiden huntresses, but Aphrodite got her revenge. She bewitched the young woman into falling in love with a bear. When Artemis found out, she abandoned the girl in disgust. Uh, Pretty typical of the gods, wouldn't you say? They fight with one another, and poor humans get caught in the middle. The girl's twin sons here, Agrius and Aureus, have no love for Olympus. They like half-bloods well enough, though. For lunch, Agrius growled. His gruff voice was like the one I'd heard Luke talking with earlier. His brother Aureus laughed, licking his fur-lined lips. He kept laughing like he was having an asthmatic fit until Luke and Agrius both stared at him. Shut up, idiot, Agrius growled. Go punish yourself. Aureus whimpered. He trudged over to the corner of the room, slumped onto a stool, and banged his forehead against the dining table, making the silver plates rattle. Luke was acting like this was perfectly normal behavior. He made himself comfortable on the sofa and propped his feet up on the coffee table. Well, Percy, we let you survive another year. I hope you appreciated it. How's your mom? How's school? You poisoned Talia's tree. Luke sighed. Yeah, right to the point, huh? All right, sure. I poisoned the tree, so what? How could you? Annabeth sounded so angry I thought she'd explode. Talia saved your life. Our lives. How could you dishonor her? I didn't dishonor her, Luke snapped. The gods dishonored her, Annabeth. If Talia were alive, she'd be on my side. Liar. If you knew what was coming, you'd understand. I'd understand you want to destroy camp, she yelled. You're a monster. Luke shook his head. Oh, the gods have blinded you. Can't you imagine a world without them, Annabeth? What good is that ancient history that you study? Three thousand years of baggage. The West is rotten to the core. It has to be destroyed. You join me. We can start this world anew. We could use your intelligence, Annabeth. Yeah, because you've got none of your own. His eyes narrowed. I know you, Annabeth. You deserve better than tagging along some hopeless quest to save the camp. Half-Blood Hill will be overrun by monsters within the month. The heroes who survive will have no choice but to join us or be hunted to extinction. You really want to be on a losing team? 
with company like this. Luke pointed at Tyson. Hey, I said. Traveling with the Cyclops, Luke chided. Talk about dishonoring Talia's memory. I- I'm surprised at you, Annabeth. You of all people. Stop it, she shouted. I didn't know what Luke was talking about, but Annabeth buried her head in her hands like she was about to cry. Leave her alone, I said, and leave Tyson out of this. Luke laughed. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard. Your father claimed him. I must have looked surprised because Luke smiled. Yeah, Percy, I know all about that. And about your plan to find the fleece. What were those coordinates again? Uh, 30, 31, 75, 12... You see, I I still have friends at camp who keep me posted. Spies, you mean? He shrugged. How many insults from your father can you stand, Percy? You think he's grateful to you? You think Poseidon cares for you any more than he cares for this monster? Tyson clenched his fists and made a rumbling sound down in his throat. Luke just chuckled. (laughs) I mean, the gods are so using you, Percy. You got any idea what's in store for you if you reach your 16th birthday? Has Chiron even told you the prophecy? I wanted to get in Luke's face and tell him off, but as usual, he knew just how to throw me off balance. Sixteenth birthday? I mean, I I knew Chiron had received a prophecy from the Oracle many years ago. I knew that part of it was about me. But if I reached my sixteenth birthday, I didn't like the sound of that. I know what I need to know, I managed. Like who my enemies are. Then you're a fool. Tyson smashed the nearest dining chair to splinters. Percy is not a fool. (laughs) Before I could stop him, he charged Luke. His fists came down toward Luke's head, a double overhead blow that would have knocked a hole in titanium, but the bear twins intercepted. They each caught one of Tyson's arms and stopped him cold. They pushed him back, and Tyson stumbled. He fell to the carpet so hard the deck shook. Too bad, Cyclops, Luke said. Looks like my grizzly friends together are more than a match for your strength. Maybe I should let him... Luke, I cut in. Listen to me. Your father sent us. His face turned the color of pepperoni. Don't even mention him. He told us to take this boat. I thought it was just for a ride, but he sent us here to find you. He told me he won't give up on you, no matter how angry you are. (laughs) Angry? Luke roared. Give up on me? He abandoned me, Percy. I want Olympus destroyed. Every throne crushed to rubble. You tell Hermes it's gonna happen, too. Each time a half-blood joins us, the Olympians grow weaker and we go stronger. He goes stronger. Luke pointed to the gold sarcophagus. The box creeped me out, but I was determined not to show it. 
So, I demanded, what's so special? Then it hit me. What might be inside the sarcophagus? The temperature in the room seemed to drop twenty degrees. Whoa, 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 you don't mean... He's reforming, Luke said. Little by little, we're calling his life force up out of the pit. With every recruit who pledges to our cause, another small piece appears. That's disgusting, Annabeth said. Luke sneered at her. Your mother was born from Zeus's split skull, Annabeth. I wouldn't talk. Soon there are going to be enough of the Titan Lord we can make him whole again. We will piece together a new body for him. A work worthy of the forges of Hephaestus. You're insane, Annabeth said. Join us, and you'll be rewarded. We got powerful friends, rich sponsors enough to buy this cruise ship, and much, much more. Percy, your mother will never have to work again. You can buy her a mansion. You can have power, fame, whatever you want. Annabeth, you can realize your dream of being an architect. You can build a monument to last a thousand years. A temple to the lords of the next age. Go to Tartarus she said. Luke sighed. Oh, yeah. It's a shame. He picked up something that looked like a TV remote and pressed a red button. Within seconds, the door of the stateroom opened and two uniformed crew members came in, armed with nightsticks. They had the same glassy-eyed look as other mortals I'd seen, but... I had a feeling this wouldn't make them any less dangerous in a fight. All right, good, okay, Luke said. Security, I am afraid that we have got some stowaways. Yes, sir, they said dreamily. Luke turned to Aureus. It's time to feed the Ethiopian Dracon. Take these fools below and show them how it's done. Aureus grinned stupidly. <laughs> Let me go, too, Agrius grumbled. My brother's worthless. That Cyclops is no threat, Luke said. He glanced back at the golden casket as if something were troubling him. Agrius, you stay here. We have important matters to discuss. But Aureus, don't fail me. Stay in the hold to make sure the Dracon is properly fed. Aureus prodded us with his javelin and herded us out of the stateroom, followed by the two human security guards. As I walked down the corridor with Aureus's javelin poking me in the back, I thought about what Luke had said, that the bear twins together were a match for Tyson's strength, but maybe separately. We exited the corridor amidships and walked across an open deck lined with lifeboats. I knew the ship well enough to realize this would be our last look at sunlight. Once we got to the other side, we'd take the elevators down into the hold, and that would be it. I looked at Tyson and said, Now! Thank the gods he understood. He turned and smacked Aureus thirty feet backward into the swimming pool, right into the middle of the zombie tourist family. The kids yelled in unison. 
We are not having a blast in the pool! One of the security guards drew his nightstick, but Annabeth knocked the wind out of him with a well-placed kick. The other guard ran for the nearest alarm box. Stop him! Annabeth yelled, but it was too late. Just before I banged him on the head with a deck chair, he hit the alarm. Red lights flashed. Sirens wailed. Lifeboat! I yelled. We ran for the nearest one. By the time we got the cover off, monsters and more security men were swarming the deck, pulling aside tourists and waiters with trays of tropical drinks. A guy in Greek armor drew his sword and charged, but slipped in a puddle of pina colada. Lestragonian archers assembled on the deck above us, knocking arrows to their enormous bows. How do you launch this thing? Annabeth screamed. A hellhound leapt at me, but Tyson slammed it aside with a fire extinguisher. Get in! I yelled. I uncapped Riptide and slashed the first volley of arrows out of the air. Any second, we would be overwhelmed. The lifeboat was hanging over the side of the ship, high above the water. Annabeth and Tyson were having no luck in releasing the pulley. I jumped in beside them. Hold on! I yelled, and I cut the ropes. A shower of arrows whistled over our heads as we free fell toward the ocean. And that is the abrupt end of our first chapter. Zoop! It was over real fast, wasn't it? <laughs> Suddenly, you know, we're in the middle of this chase scene, and that's where we end a chapter here. It's interesting to see the differences between how the different chapters end, right? How chapters in different books decide to end. Of course, as we've discussed with um, The Hobbit on Tuesdays, that is, every Tuesday, we've just completed chapter 12, and we're going to be moving on to chapter 13 next week. Um, we've kind of determined that the pattern in those books is one of full adventures in a chapter. Each chapter is its own full adventure, start to finish. It starts from a place of rest and kind of ends generally in another place of rest. It's sort of telling the, the stories of an entire little mini adventure within the greater one. In this one... I mean, this is, frankly, not where I would have ended a chapter. Full disclosure, I would not have ended a chapter right here. I think, I think honestly, I probably would have... I probably would have combined that last chapter with a, um... Uh, with the chapter before it. So, essentially, had everything from them sneaking aboard through their meeting with Luke... I probably would have had all of that be one chapter and then stopped that chapter right as they were exiting the room, right? And then having the beginning of this chapter be that little tag there at the end wherein uh, Percy's trying to decide, like, maybe Tyson can take just one of these two bear men alone. Hello. Jem says, it was a rather strange way to end. At least a kerplunk or something. Rollet says, I agree. Dahlia says, yeah, the chapter break feels unnatural, but I understand just needing to not have extremely long chapters. Indeed, yes. I think it's uh, it's important not to have them drag on and on and on, and it's especially important to not have them be, like, of wildly different lengths as we were experiencing in The Hobbit. I've had to break some of those into multiple bits because when, you, when that is your sort of organizational scheme for these things... Um, your patterns can go way, way off. Um, for instance, we had, I think, early on, one of the one of the first chapters is like... Well, we, we've had chapters anywhere from like 2,200 words all the way up to 
pushing 10,000 words. Um, so, yeah, some huge differences over there. It's a little harder to keep track of, a little harder to find a rhythm within this, and sometimes I think that is used to good effect. For instance, in The Hobbit, I think, you know, although it's not my sort of personal preference as like an easy way to experience the story, I do think it pretty naturally conveys the idea that journeys are kind of like stop-and-go affairs, or kind of stop-and-go adventures, and with this one, I do wonder if it's possible that there's some sort of rhyme or reason to trying to divide the chapters up in this way. Perhaps it's to sort of um, keep the... keep the increments of action pretty standard, right? We, we try to keep a pretty similar um, a pretty similar chapter length between all the chapters. Possibly. Helps to get into a rhythm. Helps to get a sense that there is a rhythm to the quests that they're going on. That sort of thing. <laughs> Let's see. What's chat talking about here? Uh, Memnite says, oh, getting caught in the rain. I see. Talk about the pina coladas, eh? Eh? Uh, Sandra says, I still wonder what the monster, what monster is controlling the mortals? It's an interesting question, right? Um, and yeah, I, I do wonder, like, is it something that is exerting some sort of control over them? Or is it just a matter of the mist, right? Because we know the mist can really kind of like affect people in strange ways. So if there's so many monsters here aboard the ship, what if they're just constantly got a head full of this mist stuff or something like that? I don't know. I don't know. Memnite says, a lot of YA books are written like this. It's to keep kids interested, I think. You never feel like putting the book down. Yeah, so that kind of, that idea of like uh, cliffhangers, essentially. A bit of that. So you kind of, you stop the action somewhere in the middle so that you, as a reader, uh, you as an author, uh, stop the action somewhere in the middle so that the readers want to come back and read a second chapter um, whenever they put the book down. Rowlett says, since when did Luke have motion magic moving chairs? That was a weird little moment, right? That was a very strange moment. Uh, suddenly, uh, inexplicably, and seemingly without any sort of, like, prompt or, or um, oh, what is the word, precedent, there is that weird little note. Let me go find that, because it probably escaped some folks here. He waved his hand, and three dining chairs scooted themselves into the center of the room. What now? Excuse me? That's pretty weird, right? Why is it that Luke suddenly seems to have these powers? Or were these powers that perhaps Luke has had for a while? If so, could we potentially see where he might have used them? Because you're right, we don't have an idea yet of where or when he got these. So if he's had them for a while, then perhaps this is what gave him his edge as a fighter. Who knows? Uh, but Rowlet is presenting a different possibility. Is that the blessing? Is it, is it some sort of blessing from Kronos? And I think that's perhaps a more likely scenario, right? Uh, we know that Percy can do some things with water. We've seen the ways that Percy can do that. Um, this doesn't seem to have any great roots in travel or thievery, you know what I mean? So it's not like I'm thinking necessarily along the lines that this is like something that he can naturally do because of who his father was. His father Hermes, right? I can't think of a, a way to connect these two ideas. So it's Percy gets his power from his father, but Luke is maybe getting his from somewhere else. 
and considering the timeline, considering who Luke has kind of affiliated himself with, the faction that he's joined here, I think it's probably not too far from right to say that Kronos is a pretty good a pretty good suspect in all of this. Rose says, I think Kronos might be giving some of them to him as a bait for him. So kind of like as a yeah, as a reward or as something to sort of keep him keep him invested. Um, as I've mentioned a couple of times here on the channel, I've done a study of cults um, for some writing projects, and one of the big things that helps cult leaders uh, maintain their power is to give some sort of power to a group of people underneath them. When someone is given power by somebody else, they will protect that structure because they perceive that it is the structure that has given them power. So if Kronos wants to maintain his position as sort of this leader, then giving Luke a little bit of very literal power, it's a good way to keep him on your side. Rolet says, I think Kronos is promising him little things to keep him loyal. Yeah, exactly. Yep, some something that gives Luke the sense that, hey, you know, I, Kronos, might just be might just be kind of a, a disembodied voice from the pit, but look, if you if you invest, if you use your energy and your talents and your time to support this new structure of power, you have a place in that. Dahlia says, Really, Sam? Ask me about cults sometime. Interesting. I would love to, Dahlia. Rollet says, I'm pretty sure Cronus is going to kill him later once he's back to full power. Well, it certainly wouldn't be the first time we've seen something of that nature, right? This is not the first time that someone would that that someone, especially like Kronos, who has a pretty established track record of being just being despicable, right? Um, he's got a track record, and it doesn't seem like it would be outside of the realm of possibility for Kronos or someone like Kronos to use Luke and then discard him or kill him, especially in this scenario and. I think this is where we're going to come to our chatter break question because I want to leave you all with one before I go and take my quick break. Um, I'm going to take five minutes and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about it. We're going to review. We're going to go into our second and final chapter for the evening. Here's my question. It's about Luke. What is Luke's drive right now? We talk about motivation um, in in writing, in acting, we talk about motivation. What is Luke's motivation? That's my chatterbreak question. What is Luke's motivation? There we go. Memnite and uh, yeah, Memnite and a couple of others, but I think largely Memnite has been has been highlighting those as I go off to my break. So thank you very much. You can find that highlighted message there. That will give you all an indication of what precisely is the chatterbreak question. Everyone, thank you very much. I'm going to take a quick five minute break. You'll see the timer up here on screen, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about this question. So. Put your answers in chat. I want to see them here on Twitch. I can see them on Discord as well. Y'all, I'll be back in five. See you in a bit. Bye-bye. And we're back, aren't we? The answer is yes. The answer to that particular chatterbreak question is yes. And speaking of Chatterbreak questions, once again, boy in with the weak segues. Here we go on our Chatterbreak question, because the Chatterbreak question was, 
What is Luke's drive right now? What's Luke's motivation? What is pushing Luke to do the things, pushing or pulling Luke to do the things that he is doing? Jem says, I'm suddenly on a very serious train of thought. Interesting. Sandra says, power. There's definitely something to be said about that. Luke is, when Luke speaks, right? That is, I think that is the most outward thing that, that Luke seems to be indicating, that there is this, there's this idea of power. Well, maybe not the most outward, outer thing. Um, it's sort of like, it's one level underneath. Because um, I think the the very top level is Rolet. I think Rolet has it here. His hate for Olympians, because his father abandoned him and humans constantly being in the middle of the gods fighting for entertainment. Yeah, entertainment or just gods being petty. I think that's probably the headliner. And then underneath that, definitely he is explicit about having power here. He talks about... Whoop. My sound foam is falling once again. What exactly does he say about power? He says, the gods blinded you. Imagine a world without them. Um, it has to be destroyed. Do, 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 do. It's toward the end here, right? Uh, give up on me. He'll abandon me. So he wants destruction. This is what he, this is what he begins by talking about, right? Um, he begins by talking about the destruction, as Rolet has mentioned, destroying Olympus, destroying the power of the gods, all of that. And then, and then he starts talking about power. That's what comes next here. Alexander's saying he uh, he says we have powerful friends. Um, you can have power, fame, whatever you want. Annabeth, you can realize your dream of being an architect. You can build a monument to last a thousand years, etc. Power for sure. It's definitely on the list somewhere. And as I've said so many times, you know, something as complicated as a person, too complicated to be called just good or bad. In that same way, even the motivations toward this one mission that Luke seems to have, even these motivations are probably too complicated to be summed up by two or, let's find out if there are more, things. Um, Shotzi says, I'd say searching for a father figure, which Kronos is probably promising to be. And that's what I think is sort of lying underneath all of this. It's that idea of of wanting a mentor, a, uh, a, a, a parent, a leader, something between you and the chaos of the world. Um, I think this is a reason why many people, um, why, why religion has such an appeal for many people. I think there is this great desire that there is some shield between you, between you and the, the chaos of everything around you. There has to be something there, right? And I think there is something in that underneath all of these things that Luke's doing. I think he started with this deep, maybe shame, maybe loneliness, maybe just sense of being abandoned from Hermes. And then that grew into resentment of all the gods in general. Um, a resentment that the gods, I can't say they haven't earned it. We don't know necessarily all of the, you know, possibly secret ways that maybe Hermes was involved in Luke's life over time. We don't know, but it seems like overall pretty uninvolved here. And that seems to be consistent for most of the gods. I think if we start with that, then there's a hole somewhere in, somewhere in Luke's life. And if something comes along and offers to fill that void, 
there's going to be a powerful temptation to get involved with something like that. Shotzi says, the gods who, uh, the gods who are give, wait, the go- if the gods are who give their kiddos their powers, like Percy's water affinity, and Kronos gave him power to move things, he's already inserted himself into Luke's life in a fatherly way. Certainly sort of like bequeathing him with something important, whether it's as a father or as a, as a leader or some sort of mentor, just something more powerful in between Luke and the chaos around him. There's something there. Memnite says, time for a deep dive. Yearning. Luke feels abandoned, unloved by his father, and like he has no real purpose to be an endangered servant, uh, except to be an indentured servant to the gods. He wants to feel recognized. He wants someone to notice him and give him the attention he feels that he lacked growing up. Big time daddy issues drive him to get this attention in all the wrong ways. Very possibly. Very possibly. I think that that is, that's roughly my read on it. I think, I think that there are a lot of things and I think, you know, I think daddy issues is like, that's a term that gets thrown around. I think it is a subset of a much larger thing of, of people wanting there to be something between you and the chaos. I think, um, sometimes fathers fill that role. Sometimes others fill that role, but to have something like a parent or a mentor or something like that between you and the chaos, that is something that people I believe that people want that as deeply as they want to feel important themselves. I think sometimes it even comes into conflict with that idea. I think people want to feel important. That is, I think, a a, a central drive um, to all people that has been that has been pretty consistent over time. And I think one that I have not heard anyone else talk about, but myself. This is my own read on people. I think humans want there to be something between them and chaos. Between them and randomness. Just this idea that there is some will, some sentience, something that I can influence that will, if I do things right, protect me from some of the chaos around me. Rose says, it's revenge, but I think more deeply, he hasn't processed the fact that his father abandonment caused him pain and trauma, and this is a way for Hermes to finally see him. This is an interesting different take. Rose, I like this. We've talked about some of these, so we've talked about the different layers, right? Top layer, the stuff that he talks about plenty, he wants to bring down Olympus. A layer underneath that, power. A layer underneath that, his desire to, um, uh, his, his, his yearning to have some sort of authority figure in his life, um, something that he can, he can rely on because obviously you can't rely on chaos and the other people who might have been able to fill this role like Hermes, like, you know, I guess possibly Chiron in some instances, maybe people have not filled this role. So maybe Kronos will something reliable. Um, but there is this interesting idea that Rose is bringing up that this might be kind of a way to say, not Kronos is my new dad, but hey, Hermes, you're going to notice me whether you've decided to or not. It's not up to you whether or not I come, I, I, I sort of pass across your desk here or your, 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 your vision. I'm going to bring myself to the front and center. I think that's a really interesting idea, Rose, one that I had not considered. Um... Rose goes on to say he's also reacting to Talia's loss and the loss of so many other abandoned half-bloods. The gods are not just awful to mortals, they're heinous parents, and there's something of a righteousness to what he's doing, even if his methods are wrong and will make everything so much worse. Yes, I think this is the importance. This right here is 
a perfect illustration of the importance of understanding without condoning. We can understand why Luke wants to do something like this without approving of his methods, without approving of the things that he does as a result. I don't need to say, yes, the things that Luke are doing is correct for me to say, I understand why Luke would do this. Unless we find out later on that, oh yeah, the gods the gods are like constantly doing battle with the, the, the demons of chaos and it's all that they can do just to keep their kids safe. Until we find that out, and you would think the gods would have an opportunity to present that, and you would also think that the gods have shown themselves to be self-important enough to do something like that, like announce, hey, here's what I'm doing to keep you safe. Doesn't seem like any of that is the case. As such, it seems like the gods might have earned this reputation. Sorry for scaring you, Dahlia. Hippie says, I'm lurking tonight. A lot of my thoughts on this have already been shared by others here. Kudos. Excellent. <laughs> Hogwarts Hippie has just jumped in to say, hey, yeah, what they said. Definitely. Hey, they said some good stuff over there. I think that's solid. I think I think it's great that, because, look, Hippie, you have been the heart of many conversations already. You've done, you've done great work already. Uh, Hippie says, yeah, these gods are super petty and childish. <laughs> And, let's see, with a very different take, Memnite says Luke just wants to be eaten alive, that's all. But perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> it just wants to go out with a bang. Um, let's see, Tanisha says there's a quote from Wake Siren, Ovid Resung, that is Arachne's myth from her perspective, where she says, quote, I painted my whole poor world versus all the deathless gods who live guiltless, who live guiltless and without consequences, end quote. And I think that's kind of how Luke feels. I think y'all have made some excellent observations here. Um, I think drilling down into why Luke is doing the things that he's doing is often... The, the motivations of villains, if you dig down and you can find real reasons in there, I think that's a mark of having done something right. I think it is those villains where you dig down further and further and there's just nothing there. Those are the ones that are deeply dissatisfying. Now, let's move on to our second chapter, shall we? Y'all, thank you very much for a wonderful discussion. Uh, that was excellent, and I look forward to more. Um, however, for this chapter, we need a review. Chapter 9, which we just read. It's a rather short chapter, but it's important. We find that Luke Luke kind of knows Percy is aboard. And not only that, but after Percy and Annabeth and Tyson are caught, they have a discussion. This is a conversation where we really understand much more about Luke than when we went in. When we come out of this conversation, we really understand all of those things that we just talked about in our discussion. We understand the different levels of his of his motivations. We understand that sort of up near the top, there's this idea of tearing down Olympus. It's rotten. It needs to come down. Underneath that, this idea of maybe making a name for himself, having some power for himself. Underneath that, there is... Underneath that is, is this idea that he feels like he wants something reliable, something between him and the chaos, whether it's a father figure or an authority figure or a mentor or or a leader, something between him and the chaos. And it seems like Kronos is kind of filling that position. 
possibly in parallel to that, he's we, we talked about maybe this idea that this is a way for Hermes to finally take notice of him. That Luke Luke spent so long never being noticed by Hermes, never being acknowledged, never being never having any any um indication that he is important to Hermes in any way. Maybe this is Luke's way of grabbing those particular reins on his own and forcing Hermes to notice. Possibly. When we end this chapter, um, Tyson has fought off one of the bear men that are it, it, it is transporting them down to the the lower decks where things are going to get bad. They're going to get fed to a dracon of some kind. Um, and Percy, Annabeth, I almost said Hermione, uh, and Tyson are on a uh, a little sort of life raft, kind of a a like an escape boat, a lifeboat. There we go. Why couldn't I, why couldn't I make that pull? That doesn't have anything to do with my particular like neurological issue of not being able to figure out the, uh, the name of people when I need to say them. That was just a bad one right there. Anyway, they're dropping into the water and that is where we ended our last chapter. All that said, I hope you enjoy. For those of you who are joining us late, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and it's Thursday, which means that we are currently in the midst of Flying Sidecar. This is our Thursday show, it is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Right now, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Sea of Monsters, Chapter 10. We hitch a ride with dead Confederates. Thermos! I screamed as we hurtled toward the water. What? Annabeth must have thought I lost my mind. She was holding on to the boat straps for dear life, her hair flying straight up like a torch. But Tyson understood. He managed to open my duffel bag and take out Hermes's magical thermos without losing his grip on it or the boat. Arrows and javelins whistled past us. I grabbed the thermos and hoped I was doing the right thing. Hang on! I am hanging on, Annabeth yelled. Tighter! I hooked my feet underneath the boat's inflatable bench, and as Tyson grabbed Annabeth and me by the backs of our shirts, I gave the thermos cap a quarter turn. Instantly, a white sheet of wind jetted out of the thermos and propelled us sideways, turning our downward plummet into a 45-degree crash landing. The wind seemed to laugh as it shot out of the thermos, like it was glad to be free. As we hit the ocean, we bumped once, twice, skipping like a stone, and then we were whizzing along like a speedboat. Salt spray in our faces and nothing but sea ahead. I heard a wail of outrage from the ship behind us, but we were already out of weapon range. The Princess Andromeda faded to the size of a white toy boat in the distance. And then, it was gone. As we raced over the sea, Annabeth and I tried to send an iris message to Chiron. We figured it was important. We let somebody know what Luke was doing, and we didn't know who else to trust. The wind from the thermos stirred up a nice sea spray that made a rainbow in the sunlight, perfect for an iris message, but our connection was still poor. When Annabeth threw a gold drachma into the mist and prayed for the rainbow goddess to show us Chiron, his face appeared all right, but there was some kind of weird strobe light flashing in the background and rock music blaring, like he was at a dance club. 
We told him about sneaking away from camp, and Luke and the Princess Andromeda, and the golden box for Cronus's remains. But between the noise on his end and the rushing wind and water on our end, I'm not sure how much he heard. Percy! Chiron yelled. You have to watch out for... His voice was drowned out by loud shouting behind him, a bunch of voices whooping it up like Comanche warriors. What? I yelled. Don't curse my relatives! Chiron ducked as a plate flew over his head and shattered somewhere out of sight. And Beth, you shouldn't have let Percy leave the camp. But if you do, go to get the fleece. Oh, yeah, baby! Somebody yelled behind Chiron. The music got cranked up. Subwoofers so loud it made our boat vibrate. Miami! Chiron was saying. I'll try to keep watch. Our misty screens smashed apart like someone on the other side had thrown a bottle at it. And Chiron was gone. An hour later, we spotted land. A long stretch of beach lined with high-rise hotels. The water became crowded with fishing boats and tankers. A Coast Guard cruiser passed by on the starboard side, then turned like it wanted a second look. I guess it wasn't every day they see a yellow lifeboat with no engine going a hundred knots an hour, manned by three kids. That's Virginia Beach, Annabeth said as we approached the shoreline. Oh my gods, how did the Princess Andromeda travel so far overnight? That's like... 530 nautical miles, I said. She stared at me. How do you know that? I'm... I'm not sure. Annabeth thought about it for a moment. Percy, what's our position? 36 degrees, 44 minutes north, 76 degrees, eh, two minutes west, I said immediately. Then I shook my head. Whoa. How, how did I know that? Because of your dad, Annabeth guessed. When you're at sea, you have perfect bearings. That is so cool. I wasn't sure about that. I didn't want to be a human GPS unit, but before I could say anything, Tyson tapped my shoulder. Mmm, other boat is coming. I looked back. The Coast Guard vessel was definitely on our tail now. Its lights were flashing and it was gaining speed. We can't let them catch us, I said. They'll ask too many questions. Keep going into Chesapeake Bay, Annabeth said. I know a place that we can hide. I wasn't sure what she meant or how she knew the area so well. I risked loosening the thermos a little bit more, and a fresh burst of wind sent us rocketing around the northern tip of Virginia Beach into Chesapeake Bay. The Coast Guard boat fell further and further behind. We didn't slow down until the shores of the bay narrowed on either side, and I realized we'd entered the mouth of a river. I could feel the change from salt water to fresh water. Suddenly I was tired and frazzled, like I was coming down off a sugar high. I didn't know where I was anymore, or which way to steer the boat. It's a good thing Annabeth was directing me. There, she said, past that sandbar. We veered into a swampy area choked with marsh grass. I beached the lifeboat at the foot of a giant cypress. Vine-covered trees loomed above us. Insects chirped in the woods. 
The air was muggy and hot, and steam curled off the river. Basically, it wasn't Manhattan, and I didn't like it. Come on, Annabeth said. It's just down the bank. What is? I asked. Just follow. She grabbed a duffel bag. And we better cover the boat. We don't want to draw attention. After burying the lifeboat with branches, Tyson and I followed Annabeth along the shore, our feet sinking in red mud. A snake slithered past my shoe and disappeared into the grass. Not a good place, mm, Tyson said. He swatted the mosquitoes that were forming a buffet line on his arm. After a few more minutes, Annabeth said, Here. All I saw was a patch of brambles. Then Annabeth moved aside a woven circle of branches like a door, and I realized I was looking into a camouflage shelter. The inside was big enough for three, even with Tyson being the third. The walls were stacked with plant material, like a Native American hut, but they looked pretty waterproof. In the corner was everything you could want for a campout. Sleeping bags, blankets, an ice chest, and a kerosene lamp. There were demigod provisions, too. Bronze javelin tips, a quiver full of arrows, an extra sword, and a box of ambrosia. The place smelled musty, like it had been vacant for a long time. A half-blood hideout. I looked at Annabeth in awe. You made this place? Talia and I, she said quietly. And Luke. That shouldn't have bothered me. I mean, I knew Talia and Luke had taken care of Annabeth when she was little. I knew the three of them had been runaways together, hiding from monsters, surviving on their own before Grover found them and tried to get them to Camp Half-Blood. But whenever Annabeth talked about the time she'd spent with them, I felt kind of, I don't know, uncomfortable? No. That's not the word. The word was jealous. So, I said, you don't think that uh, Luke is going to look for us here? She shook her head. We made a dozen safe houses like this. I doubt Luke even remembers where they are. Or cares. She threw herself down in the blankets and started going through her duffel bag. Her body language made it pretty clear she didn't want to talk. Uh, Tyson, I said, would you mind scouting around outside, like look for a wilderness convenience store or something? Convenience store? Hmm. Yeah, like for snacks. Powdered donuts or something? Just don't go too far. Powdered donuts. Hmm. Tyson said earnestly. I will look for powdered donuts in the wilderness. Hmm. He headed outside and started calling, Here, donuts. Hmm. Here, donuts. Once he was gone, I sat down across from Annabeth. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry about... You know, seeing Luke, it's not your fault. She unsheathed her knife and started cleaning the blade with a rag. He let us go too easily, I said. I had hoped I'd been imagining it, but Annabeth nodded. 
I was thinking the same thing. What we heard him say about a gamble, and they'll take the bait, I think he was talking about us. The fleece is the bait, or Grover? She studied the edge of her knife. I don't know, Percy. Maybe he wants the fleece for himself. Maybe he's hoping that we'll do all the hard work and he can steal it from us. I just can't believe he would poison the tree. What did he mean? I asked. That Talia would have been on his side. He's wrong. You don't sound sure. Annabeth glared at me, and I started to wish I hadn't asked her about this while she was holding a knife. Percy, you know who you remind me of most? Talia. You guys are so much alike, it's scary. I mean, either you would have been best friends, or you would have strangled each other. Let's go with best friends. Talia got angry with her dad sometimes. So do you. Would you turn against Olympus because of that? I stared at the quiver of arrows in the corner. No. Okay, then. Neither would she. Luke's wrong. Annabeth stuck her knife blade into the dirt. I wanted to ask her about the prophecy Luke had mentioned and what it had to do with my 16th birthday. But I figured she wouldn't tell me. Chiron had made it pretty clear that I wasn't allowed to hear it until the gods decided otherwise. So what does Luke mean about Cyclopes? I asked. He said that you of all people... I know what he said. He... he was talking about the real reason that Talia died. I waited, not sure what to say. Annabeth drew a shaky breath. You can never trust a Cyclops, Percy. Six years ago, on the night that Grover was leading us to Half-Blood Hill, she was interrupted when the door of the hut creaked open. Tyson crawled in. <laughs> Powdered donuts, he said proudly, holding up a pastry box. Annabeth stared at him. Where did you get that? We're in the middle of the wilderness. There's nothing around for... Fifty feet. Hmm, Tyson said. Monster donut shop. Hmm, just over the hill. This is bad. Annabeth muttered. We were crouching behind a tree, staring at the donut shop in the middle of the woods. It looked brand new, with brightly lit windows, a parking area, and a little road leading off into the forest. But there was nothing else around, and no cars parked in the lot. We could see one employee reading a magazine behind the cash register. That was it. On the store's marquee, in huge black letters that even I could read, it said... Monster Donut. A cartoon ogre was taking a bite out of the O in Monster. The place smelled good, like fresh-baked chocolate donuts. This... this shouldn't be here, Annabeth whispered. It's wrong. 
What? I asked. It's a donut shop. Shh. Hmm. Why are we whispering? Tyson went in and bought a dozen. Nothing happened to him. He's a monster. Come on, Annabeth. Monster donut doesn't mean monsters. It's a chain. We got him in New York. A chain, she agreed. And don't you think it's strange that one appeared immediately after you told Tyson to get donuts? Right here in the middle of the woods? I thought about it. It did seem a little weird, but I mean, donut shops weren't real high on my list of sinister forces. It could be a nest, Annabeth explained. Tyson whimpered. I doubt he understood what Annabeth was saying any better than I did, but her tone was making him nervous. He'd plowed through a half a dozen donuts from his box and was getting powdered sugar all over his face. A nest for what? I asked. Haven't you ever wondered how franchise stores pop up so fast? She asked. One day there's nothing, and the next day, boom, there's a new burger place or a coffee place or whatever. First a single store, then two, then four. Exact replicas spreading across the country. Uh, no. Never really thought about it. Percy... Some of the chains multiply so fast because all of their locations are magically linked to the life force of a monster. Some children of Hermes figured out how to do it back in the 1950s. They breed... She froze. What? what? I demanded. They breed what? No sudden moves, Annabeth said, like her life depended on it. Very slowly... Turn around. Then I heard it. A scraping noise like something large dragging its belly through the leaves. I turned and saw a rhino-sized thing moving through the shadows of the trees. It was hissing, its front half writhing in all different directions. I couldn't understand what I was seeing at first. Then I realized the thing had multiple necks, at least seven, each topped with a hissing reptilian head. Its skin was leathery, and under each neck it wore a plastic bib that read, I'm a monster donut kid! My new Twitter bio. I took out my ballpoint pen, but Annabeth locked eyes with me. A silent warning. Not yet. I understood. A lot of monsters have terrible eyesight. It was possible that the Hydra might pass us by. But if I uncapped my sword now, the bronze glow would certainly get its attention. We waited. The Hydra was only a few feet away. It seemed to be sniffing the ground and the trees like it was hunting for something. Then I noticed that two of the heads were ripping apart a piece of yellow canvas one of our duffel bags. The thing had already been to our campsite. It was following our scent. My heart pounded. I'd seen a stuffed Hydra head trophy at camp before, but that did nothing to prepare me for the real thing. Each head was diamond-shaped like a rattlesnake, but the mouths were lined with jagged rows of shark-like teeth. Tyson was trembling. He stepped back and accidentally snapped a twig. Immediately, all seven heads turned toward us and hissed. Scatter! 
Annabeth yelled. She dove to the right. I rolled to the left. One of the hydra heads spat an arc of green liquid that shot past my shoulder and splashed against an elm. The trunk smoked and began to disintegrate. The whole tree toppled straight toward Tyson, who still hadn't moved, petrified by the monster that was now standing right in front of him. Tyson! I yelled and tackled him with all my might. Knocking him aside, just as the hydra lunged and the tree crashed on top of two of its heads. As the hydra stumbled backwards, yanking its heads free and then wailing in outrage at the fallen tree, all seven heads shot acid, and the elm melted into a steaming pool of muck. "'Move!' I told Tyson. I ran to one side and capped Riptide, hoping to draw the monster's attention. It worked. The sight of celestial bronze is hateful to most monsters. As soon as my glowing blade appeared, the Hydra whipped toward it with all of its heads, hissing and baring its teeth. The good news? Tyson was momentarily out of danger. The bad news? I was about to get melted into a puddle of goo. One of the heads snapped at me experimentally. Without thinking, I swung my sword. One of the heads snapped at me experimentally. Without thinking, I swung my sword. No! Annabeth yelled. Too late. I sliced the Hydra's head clean off. It rolled away into the grass, leaving a flailing stump which immediately stopped bleeding and began to swell like a balloon. In a matter of seconds, the wounded neck split into two necks, each of which grew to a full-sized head. Now, I was looking at an eight-headed hydra. Percy, Annabeth scolded, you just opened another monster donut shop somewhere. I dodged a spray of acid. I'm about to die and you're worried about that? How do we kill it? Fire, Annabeth said. We have to have fire. As soon as she said that, I remembered the story. The Hydra's heads would only stop multiplying if we burned the stumps before they regrew. That's what Heracles had done, anyway. But we had no fire. I backed up toward the river. The Hydra followed. Annabeth moved in, and on my left, tried to distract one of the heads, parrying its teeth with her knife, but another head swung sideways like a club and knocked her into the muck. No hitting my friends! Tyson charged in, putting himself between the Hydra and Annabeth. As Annabeth got to her feet, Tyson started smashing at the monster's heads with his fists so fast it reminded me of the whack-a-mole game at the arcade. But even Tyson couldn't fend off the Hydra forever. We kept inching backward, dodging acid splashes and deflecting snapping heads without cutting them off, but I knew we were only postponing our deaths. Eventually, we would make a mistake and the thing would kill us. Then I heard a strange sound. A chug, chug, chug that at first I thought was my heartbeat. It was so powerful it made the riverbank shake. What's that noise? Annabeth shouted, keeping her eyes on the hydra. Steam engine. Hmm, Tyson said. What? I ducked as the hydra spat acid over my head. From the river behind us, a familiar female voice shouted, There! Prepare the 32-pounder! I didn't dare look away from the Hydra, but if it was who I thought it was behind us, I figured we now had enemies on two fronts. A gravelly male voice said, They're too close, my lady. Damn the heroes, the girl said. Full steam ahead! Ah, my lady, 
Fire at will, Captain! Annabeth understood what was happening a split second before I did. She yelled, Hit the dirt! And we dove into the ground as an earth-shattering boom echoed across the river. There was a flash of light. A column of smoke and the hydra exploded right in front of us, showering us with nasty green slime that vaporized as soon as it hit, the way monster guts tend to do. Gross! screamed Annabeth. Steamship! yelled Tyson. I stood, coughing from the cloud of gunpowder smoke that was rolling across the banks. Chugging toward us down the river was the strangest ship I had ever seen. It rode low in the water like a submarine, its deck plated with iron. In the middle was a trapezoid-shaped casemate with slats on each side for cannons. A flag waved from the top, a wild boar and spear on a blood-red field. Lining the deck were zombies in gray uniforms, dead soldiers with shimmering faces that only partially covered their skulls, like the ghouls I'd seen in the underworld guarding Hades's palace. The ship was an ironclad, a Civil War battle cruiser. I could just make out the name along the prow in moss-covered letters. C.S.S. Birmingham. And standing next to the smoking cannon that almost killed us, wearing full Greek armor, was Clarice. Losers, she sneered, but I suppose I have to rescue you. Come aboard. And that, believe it or don't, is the end. If you go to the Discord, I have got a special channel dedicated exclusively to playlists. You can find it up near the top, and that will take you to all of the playlists for all things Sidecar Stories, including the many shows that we have done. It's It has been... I've been very proud recently, and it's hard for me to be proud of things that I've done. I have a really hard time being proud of myself for anything. Um, but... I've been pretty proud recently of just how much I have read here. Over a million words just in the Harry Potter series. We're making great progress on Percy Jackson. We have got playlists for our RPG experiments, uh, such as uh, Dungeon World, which is a long, uh, that was a, was slash is, it is a world that I intend to return to. Um, a long form RPG campaign where chat got to play as our characters. Um, called Recitus Towers. We have got a playlist for The After, which is our most recent project. We have got one for, we did a one-shot for Halloween. And then, of course, uh, we've got Vintage Sidecar. Uh, so we have got The Great Gatsby, Frankenstein, The Hobbit. Y'all, there's a lot that we've done, and I'm finally getting to a point where I can actually kind of be proud of it. So y'all should be proud of me for finally <laughs> finally being able to do that for myself. Hogwarts Hippie says, I'm proud of you all the time, Sam. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully this will be a moment of personal growth and I will be able to use this to, to fuel future adventures. Now, everyone, let's talk about this a bit more, shall we? We know what Luke is about here. Let's have a, let's have a bit more of a discussion here before we turn it over. Um, and we're going to do some, we're, we'll do some bad beans and then just like hang out for a while. You know, as we are, as we're going into our second book in a series, it's all always kind of the big question of the small arc and the big arc. We've completed our first small arc, right? The first big challenge of getting uh, getting Percy 
getting Percy kind of to a safe place. He had to go to the underworld, and now he's back. There's the small arc, and then there's the big arc that is sort of introduced in book one, and now we're sort of, we're seeing the ways in which that is progressing. Kronos. Kronos, we, we, don't under the ground. He's coming back, though, right? This is our big arc, the one that is going to be, the one that's going to be carrying us throughout most of this series, if I were to guess. So we're being introduced to new smaller arcs, like here with Grover, and it's all piggybacking off of this bigger arc. What are y'all thinking about? What makes y'all curious in this one? Shotzi says, I'm going on a refrigerator box hunt to find me a Tyson. I think uh, I think it would certainly be worthwhile. Jade says, I'm curious about the twist. Uh, what will it be? Um, you're sort of wondering like what the twist will be in this book. Because it did seem like there was one in the last book, right? The, the big twist being, oh, it wasn't Hades at all. Uh, Iroh says, hey, Sam, where do you find the books? Uh, that's a good question. So typically I create my own PDF for them. Uh, sometimes I will, I will use the... Um, I'll, I'll like buy them on, I, 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 when I read a book, I buy it on Amazon first. Um, I, I buy some version of it. And then often because the, the annotation features on, um, on the Kindle app are not sufficient for what I need them for. Um, I can't make actual like notes on my, on them for myself. Uh, I will create my own PDF and then read that. If you're wondering like, how do I decide what book comes next? That is a matter of a vote, and for those of you who haven't been here for a little while, um, or, or I should say who have only been here for a little while, um, this might not be something that's familiar to you, but yes, after every series, uh, after every book, and this is true of basically Tuesdays and Thursday show, I think on, on Wednesdays is more sort of directed by me and and uh, whoever I'm working with at the time, um, just to decide like what we're going to be doing next, but for our reading streams, it pretty much always comes down to a vote of what we're going to be reading next. Um, I think likely, uh, after we're done with The Hobbit, I, I definitely want to take a little section of time and do a short stories kind of unit there, um, instead of reading longer form stuff, and then after this series, it's going to come down to a vote for what series we read next. Um, and, you know, as we're reading the final book, I will open up that channel to suggestions. And then those suggestions, I'll sort of, I'll take out any that I don't think would work for this format. But um, uh, that will determine what series we read next. There you go. <sighs> Muddy Monkey, I am glad you enjoyed it. Holly Rose is on another Discord call at the moment, <laughs> I see. Um, yeah, Mighty Monkey, thank you very much for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, uh, good luck to wherever it is you're heading off to tonight. Hogwarts Hippie says, kind of reminds me how I felt about, uh, or how I felt when I found out Loki had kids. Uh, Rose says, Hades has a kid. <laughs> Gem says, I would not doubt that Hades has a kid. It does seem like, it seems like, you know, there's this big... There's this big argument, right, um, between the gods, and it was it was caused by the gods' kids fighting one another. We know that Zeus has broken the rule. We know that Poseidon has broken the rule. Would we really be surprised if Hades, the one who's already sort of like shunned by the rest of them anyways, would we be surprised if Hades had broken the rule as well? That's what I say. I say... Can that be Kronos' voice? Which one? Oh, shoot. I don't even remember what voice I did. 
What voice was it? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Loki does indeed have kids. Yeah, Malakophonus Morgan's wondering, wait a second, hold on, Loki has kids? All right. I think as our final bit of discussion here, um, you know, we are, we're back with Clarice, and I've got a suspicion we're going to be traveling with Clarice for a little while here. Clarice is not just going to be some sort of one-off. And I want to know, between her, between her own drives and motivations, we talked about those explicitly with Luke, but with Clarice's drives and motivations and such, how do we think she and our trio are going to get along here? How do we think that's all going to work? How do we think this is all going to shake out? How's this going to go down? What motivates her and how is that going to interact with the things that motivate Percy and Annabeth and Tyson? Rose says when Hades talked about Zeus and Poseidon rule breaking, yeah, it does seem to come up, right? They are rule breakers at their heart. This all creature says Hades isn't recognized as a god at Half-Blood, right? At Half-Blood Hill. Uh, there's no cabin there. I don't remember. That's a good question. Somebody who knows this series like inside and out like I know Harry Potter more. I would say I'm closer to that with Harry Potter than I am with this. Um, yeah, do y'all do y'all remember? Is there is there a Hades cabin? Let's see. Out of the twelve, I want to say one may have been Hades. No cabin for him, says Gems. It was mentioned in the first book. Indeed not. Well, Hogwarts hippie's saying yes. Memnite saying no. All right, we have our first we have our first chat feud of the evening. Jade says no Hades cabin. Yeah, I don't remember. I would I would have thought yes, but I I am very open to being to to being wrong here because I have been many times before. All right, it sounds like the consensus is leaning toward no Hades cabin. So there we go. All right, um, y'all be thinking about that during this week and uh i will likely bring up that question again sort of uh during the week with the discord that discord channel has been the home to some great discussions and it's part of the reason why i've kept the uh, i've kept the harry potter one open dahlia says nope no cabin for basement boy now that's not fair now dahlia <laughs> that's just not fair thank you so much for being here um it has been absolutely glorious as i've mentioned i stream Tuesdays through Thursdays. Tuesday, we're reading The Hobbit right now. Wednesdays, we are playing RPGs. We are uh, currently going through a game called Fiasco, an eight-part miniseries called The After about discovering and defying the apocalypse. And on Thursdays, y'all are here, so you know what this is. Um, we are going to be reading over to Critical Role. Uh, they are another group um, that is doing not only like the highest level uh, in production and and some of the highest level talent I've ever seen, um, they are doing RPG shows like I want to do. I would love for someday for Sidecar to be able to put on a show exactly like Critical Role is doing. So if you want to find out more about that, head over there. Um, if you want to just be told some fantastic stories by professional, incredibly talented voice performers, this is the spot to do it. They are literally professionals. I'm talking like people who have voiced people that you know. Um, the, the GM, Matthew Mercer, he was the voice of, uh, McCree in Overwatch. Like, I'm talking that caliber of voice actor. So, head over there and check it out. Um, like I said, by hook or by crook, one way or another, I am going to get y'all absolutely hooked on the stories that are being told in RPGs right now, because they're some of the best stories that I know of. 
I hope you have enjoyed tonight. I hope you will enjoy Critical Role, and I'll see you all next week.